with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Decided to do one, one more short series before returning to our series in the Gospel of Mark that we left back in early summer or late spring sometime then. Uh, do a short series on the church. And there are quite a few things that uh, got me thinking about doing such a series. And, of course, it could be much longer than, than three weeks. Um, there's much to consider about the church. But uh, our, our men's study a little while back studied First um, Peter. And, and that'll be our text for these first two weeks of three. Um, I was asked to speak at a, a conference earlier this summer down in the Springs on the topic of the church as well. Um, I think there's just a need within the church broadly uh, to better understand, maybe even recover a, a better understanding of the church and what its place is in Scripture, what place it has in our world uh, the place it has in our lives. Um, that goes along with what has been massive cultural shift uh, in the last 50 years or so, in, uh, even within the church, in how the church is understood and appreciated and, um, and so on. That, that relates then to our understanding of uh, the worship of the church, authority, fellowship, membership, all, all kinds of things. We won't touch on all those things um, in, in just in these next few weeks, but uh, I do want to consider a few implications of the church that Jesus bought with his blood and structured in his wisdom for our care um, and is building today. So today our, our topic broadly will be the foundation of the church. So read along with me or listen as I read from First Peter 2 beginning in verse 4. This is God's holy word. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this stone became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness, into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We'll end our reading there. In in August, uh, in August many years ago, in 1972, in the same week, there are two uh, massive projects that uh, began uh, on the Asian continent uh, there in the same week. So one was in Japan, That was the Mihama nuclear power plant. Uh, And the same week, uh, in Ukraine, uh, the Chernobyl nuclear reactors uh, were begun in construction. And the Mihama nuclear power plant uh, successfully continues working until this day, uh, producing power 
for Japan. And as you probably know, uh, the Chernobyl ones were flawed from the beginning. They were doomed to fail in their design, in the procedures that were laid out uh, there in Ukraine, and that became one of the most famous disasters of all time when, when one of the reactors blew up in April of 1986. Two projects, one that was doomed to disaster really from the beginning, uh, and one that is lasting. Well, that's, that's broadly the metaphor that Peter is using in this passage here in speaking about the church. Um, just as in other parts of Scripture, Peter puts before us two building projects, two construction projects, one that's lasting and valuable uh, and secure and one that's doomed utterly to fail. And one represents those who belong to Jesus Christ, um, are building their lives on him uh, and him as the foundation, as his, his cherished precious stones. Uh, and the other represents all the other projects and hopes and lives and uh, of everyone who does not build their life on Christ, uh, doomed to disappointment and ruin from the very start, is, is what Peter explains. And so I want to ask you, challenge you, as we look at this passage this morning and next week, are you building on that foundation? Uh, and do you love the church as Jesus loves the church? Well, this passage confronts us first, as you look at number one in your outline there, with a living stone and living stones to go along with it. Uh, Jesus is the living stone, verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone. And then those who are united to Christ, Peter's readers are also described as stones. Verse 5, you also as living stones being built up as a spiritual house. There are two things said about these stones. This passage is all about these stones as it begins Two things are said about them. We first read about a rejected stone. Uh, there are several Old Testament passages that use this metaphor of a stone. Peter quotes all of them. Um, one of them that Jesus also quotes is Psalm 118 that we'll sing here this morning. Uh, there in verse 7, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What does that mean? What, what kind of a scene is Peter describing? Well, he's describing a a scene where of, of stone masons working on some kind of project and they're, they're searching through a pile of rocks or maybe stones at a quarry, looking for stones that are the right size and shape and maybe color for their building project. And, and they come upon a large cut stone and they examine it, maybe measure it, and they throw it away. They decide it's worthless. It doesn't fit what they're building. It doesn't fit their plans for some reason. And that stone in the Old Testament, and here as Peter uses it, it represents Jesus, represents the Messiah sent from heaven. And, and the masons who throw this stone away represent anyone who examines Jesus and decides he's not the Savior they wanted. He's, he's worthless to them. That, that culminated in Peter's thinking, uh, certainly in, in the execution of Jesus, the ultimate throwing away of, of this Stone, even though he was the perfect stone, he was the perfect sacrifice, right? The savior of the world, sent by God in pity and love for sinners, humbly to save. He's exactly what was needed, and yet he was cast away because he didn't fit the mold of people's expectations. He, he called people to humility and self-denial instead of immediate glory and victory and, and so on. He demands repentance 
And so many reject him. If we had more time to consider uh, this whole book and, and who Peter is writing to, we'd see clearly he's writing to people who are suffering and being persecuted. This, is, this rejection is parallel to, to Peter's readers. They've been obedient to God. These, they're, they're evidently scattered across Asia and the, the Roman Empire. Um, they've responded to God's offer of grace. They're living in hope and obedience, but they're being rejected by their society, by by their families even. Uh, in chapter 3, Peter writes that they're suffering for the sake of righteousness. Or here in this chapter, verse 12, they're, they're being slandered as evildoers just for following Christ. Uh, that's true, of course, throughout history. Christians are rejected, belittled, excluded, considered a nuisance, uh, valued little. Um, Christianity enjoys some measure of acceptance and tolerance in, in the modern Western world where we live, although that's decreasing. Opposition to Christ is, is becoming more mainstream and open um, in recent years. We can give many examples. Richard Dawkins, uh, famous uh, British atheist, um, writes that teaching Christianity to children is child abuse. As many followers. Another uh, mainstream source, Harvard, uh, Harvard University Journal, just a couple years ago, a law professor there authored an article about homeschooling, which of course many uh, populated largely by Christians. Um, homeschooling, she says, is evil, a dangerous society, and should be banned by the government. Christians are told in media and politics in subtle and not so subtle ways that we're we're welcome to participate in the public square in, in politics or academics or sciences as long as we leave Christianity at home where it belongs. There are many things that we can point to, but again, these are um, probably far less than what Peter's readers are feeling, the rejection and loss that they are experiencing. And so he encourages them, and speaking about this stone and them as stones, secondly, he, that the first thing he says about this stone is it's rejected, and, and they identify with that. But secondly, this stone, Jesus, and so they as stones are chosen by God, precious to God. And verse 4, coming to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Or verse 6, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Uh, quoting from Isaiah 28 there. The, the stone the builders thought was worthless, they measured it and they threw it away. It was chosen and appointed God by God as the most valuable and most important in, in all of the history of the world. And that's true from the moment Jesus was born, but it was, it was proclaimed most particularly, most powerfully, at, at the point at which Jesus seemed to have lost Right, seemed to have been worthless. Uh, he died on the cross and God raised him from the dead, exalted him as king of the universe with all power and judgment. God was telling the world that their judgment about this stone, about Jesus, was, was wrong. It was horribly misguided. Uh, there was never a more valuable person uh, in history. You know, imagine finding the record largest diamond in history as you're out on a hike or something, and then you... You throw it away. You think it's made of plastic. And then later you see it mounted in a museum and polished and has an unbelievable price tag on it. Uh, God has confirmed for the world the value and glory of Jesus in his resurrection. 
And so Peter turns this into a massive encouragement for those who are united to Christ. They, they're they're experiences, experiencing his rejection. But he says in verse 7, this precious value then is for you who believe. This value that, that God has shown, demonstrated in Jesus is for you who are suffering or feeling rejected perhaps. He's writing to these, these scattered, he, he calls them strangers in the world, uh, valued little, rejected in their society, to encourage them in that way. Even after 2,000 years, in, in our case, of church growth, we can be tempted to see ourselves, see the church that way, as small, weak, um, scattered, disjointed, not accepted, losing. But the reality is the church is chosen by God in love and and was taken from being basically randomly scattered rubble and verse 5 built up into a spiritual house these stones redeemed and adopted by God verse 9 a chosen race of people for God's own possession Uh, some of you maybe need to be reminded of that this morning for reasons other than what Peter's readers needed Um, if you're discouraged maybe at your own failures or struggling with understanding the value of your life or, or depression. In Christ, you're God's treasured possession. And that, that language here that Peter uses in the Greek doesn't just mean something that you own, something that you possess, like you own a t-shirt or a coffee mug or something like that, but a, a treasure. That's, that's the sense of it. Something that you keep jealously, you protect, you put it in your safe. Peter's using language from Isaiah 43 that we we read earlier this morning. God speaks of my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself. That that chapter began, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. That's the kind of, of loving ownership that God places on his church. I think of one of the greatest movies of all time, Toy Story. That's what we're all thinking of, right? The toy Woody was loved um, and valued by Andy more than all of his other toys. And that was evident just in the time that, um, that he spent with Andy, right? But it's evident also in that Andy was, or the, that Woody uh, was the only toy with Andy's name written on his boot, right? He claimed him. God says the same of his church. He's claimed her. He, he, he's put his name on her, right? We're baptized Matthew 28, into the name of the triune God. He's put his name on his church and claimed her uh, out of uncertainty and despair and guilt. And nothing can separate her from God's love because God doesn't lose his treasure. He doesn't fail to to love and care for his children. Uh, God's church is chosen and precious to him. Well, secondly, this, this passage makes clear also that not everyone has that experience or confidence Again, there are two building projects pictured here. There's this house being built up, but there were were those builders, remember, who were building something else. They threw away the cornerstone. There are these two building projects. You have to make a decision about this cornerstone, about Jesus. Again, the imagery presents the builder. God has laid a stone in Zion. He's building on that with living stones. And then... The builders, verse 6 implies they, they're the ones who will be disappointed. Uh, verse 8, they're, they're appointed to doom in their project. 
And we'll, we'll come back in, in the end this morning and, and then in the next two weeks to see what this says about the church. But, but I want to focus here in a moment just on the, the choice made over this stone. The builders threw it away. God made him the very cornerstone. Verse 7. Now, cornerstone in the ancient world was, uh, was really important. Uh, we, because of modern technology, we don't have a, a need for this exact kind of thing today. But if you're making a, a stone building, a cornerstone laid the, the angle and direction and, and level of, of the entire building. And it was crucial. Everything was built from that big cornerstone. The sense in which every one of us, figuratively, is a builder. We're, we're searching for stones. We're searching for things to, to build our lives with, right? to fill our time with and significance, uh, to build on. Um, and we need to decide what to do with this large cornerstone, with Jesus, when we're confronted by him. And this passage reminds that every other building project, every life not built on, not calibrated to that foundation stone, will fail. Every life not built on what God shows in Christ to be reality and true. Um, Every life that's not experienced the forgiveness of God for sins in the death of Jesus on the cross um, will fail. This this imagery is an illustration for how stupid humans are on on our own. We're like stonemasons picking through a pile of rocks and, and throwing away the best ones. Or, or like miners, you know, left to our blindness, our selfishness, our pride. We're like miners looking for gemstones. And we're, we're gathering up lumps of coal and, and throwing away diamonds in our decisions about life and worship and marriage and family and money and, and how we understand our relationship to God. And so Peter makes clear that a choice needs to be made. He He makes that clear in using this metaphor again in Acts chapter 4. And he's preaching uh, there in Acts 4. Peter and John were arrested after healing uh, the cripple man. And and, uh, Annas and Caiaphas and other rulers are trying to decide how this happened and uh, commanding them never to speak of Jesus again, um, even though this man was healed. And, And Peter says, know this, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. And salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And all, all three of the passages that Peter quotes here about the, the, the stone, the cornerstone of the Old Testament, picture a, a, a stone laid in Zion, the, the coming of Jesus, as forcing a decision on all people of what to do about him. You either value him or you cast him aside. You either built into him, you're built on him as a foundation of a new and lasting life, or you, you stumble over this stone. It's, it's a rock of stumbling. That, that, that language is used of it multiple times. And it wrecks everything you've built your life on. You can't step around this stone. You can't avoid dealing with him. You can't just go another way or take a pass or be apathetic. Uh, Jesus forces a decision. Verse 8 describes what becomes of those who who reject him. Um, He becomes, uh, there in verse 8, a stone of stumbling. And, And in Greek, that's a petra scandalon. And you can probably hear our English word scandal in that. And maybe you can also hear Peter's name in Greek, Petra. 
um, a stone of stumbling, a rock of scandal. You either obey him as Savior and Lord or his claims, if you really understand them, they offend you. They become a scandal to you. That, that you're not really autonomous. You don't belong to yourself. You, you have guilt before a holy God that needs to be paid for. And it's incredibly interesting that, that Peter is writing this because Peter himself, Peter, Petros, Petra, the Lord Jesus once called him a scandalon, a Petra scandalon. He was a rock of offense. You recall in Matthew 16, he, he stood in opposition to the idea of Jesus suffering and dying. He essentially said, Lord, that's, that's a ridiculous idea. You're not going to suffer and die. And, and Jesus responded, uh, paraphrasing, you're, you're a rock of offense. He called him a, a scandalon. Peter, you're, you're in my way. You're in your own way of what you need. So Peter faced that decision himself. Would he accept Jesus, his need for a Savior, as Jesus was presented? Uh, or would he stumble over Jesus and, and go his own way? Uh, and the point, again, is you cannot avoid either accepting, obeying, building on Jesus, or uh, tripping over him, coming, coming to ruin. I thirdly want to look at number three on your outline, come back, um, to think particularly about the church here. And, and while there is, as I've been saying, a sense in which you need, you individually need to choose Jesus and build your life on him as your foundation, uh, Jesus is the one who is building this building. He's the one who's building it. And this is what he's doing in the world. He's building his church. And so a couple of ways I want to get at the application I want you to think about this week is, is do you choose the church in your life? Do you prioritize Jesus' church? Uh, our, our culture is increasingly individualized, and that has affected the church and Christianity, having been increasingly individualized in some ways. It's just you and Jesus. But what does this passage say Jesus does with these precious stones that he saved? Right? Does he set them up as a, a monument? Does he... Is he you know, make you into a really great person, polish you up as like a gemstone. No, you're built into a spiritual house. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the metaphor is a body, into a body or into a family. But here it's a house. This is what you're saved into, what you're saved for, what Jesus is doing in the world. He's building his church. And, and that, that, that is through local churches, actual churches by, by his design with actual people and leadership and worship and so on by Christ's design. Choosing Jesus is not just a private, personal decision. Uh, choosing Jesus is choosing the church, largely. Choosing and loving his church, building on the foundation that God has, has laid. And that's not just Sunday mornings. It's not just when you're together with, with the congregation. It's inclusive of all of your vocations, all of your relationships every day of the week. But always in the context of, always part of Jesus' church as a living stone. Uh, pursuing the good of the church as it's, as, again, organized with real people in a real place where you are. Uh, do you love the church? Why don't you consider that this morning? This, again, it's an incredible metaphor that Peter's, Peter's using because Jesus is the only inherently valuable stone in this building. 
He is the perfect priceless stone among a pile of worthless stones. But where did he get all the stones for this house then that he's building? Well, to to push Peter's metaphor here, he he picked through all these worthless stones, you and me and everyone else, and, and loved us and shaped us for his house, for his body, for his family. And the building that is the church is precious to him, not because the stones have any value in in and of themselves, but because he chose and loved and died for her. And so you are called to love the church. But it's a challenge to consider why we love the church really. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that not many of you were wise or or strong or impressive, worldly in, in, in any way. Um, God chose the worthless things, he says, to shame the wise and the wisdom of the world. That's, those are the kind of stones that he chose. And for all of us, there are temptations to love the church for reasons other than Jesus and, and his sacrificial love for the church, for, for pastors or for other people in ministry. There's a temptation to love a ministry more than Jesus and, and his precious stones. For many, the church gives a sense of fulfillment or, or doing what's right. That's not all bad, but it's not loving the church. You can love merely the social benefits of the church. I, I recently talked to a guy who had a clear Christian profession. He told me his, his wife and kids go to church, and he recognizes that you know they, they, that helps them emotionally, and they really appreciate the social aspect of it, but it's not for him. Uh, he, he doesn't need that. Um, I, of course, I believe he does need that. It's Jesus' provision for him. But it's not just about fulfillment or need. It's also about loving and building on what Jesus loves and is building in the world. Even though God is building his church in a way that shames the wisdom of the world, uh, the wisdom of the world creeps into the church, into the way we think about the church We're encouraged and discouraged by things irrelevant to the value and importance of Jesus' church, like like, uh, the size of ministries or or numbers and things like that. Which of us hasn't fallen into making some kind of prideful judgment, uh, comparing sizes of churches, for example, as if making valuation of a business or a political rally or something like that. Um, Americans are obsessed with those kinds of judgments. Um, I, I almost never have a conversation with someone I've just met and they learn that I'm a pastor of a church and if they have some interest in that, I almost never have a conversation where the next question isn't, how big is your church? How many people are there? That's what they want to know, right? Um, I was looking through a stack of Christian books uh, just this last week and came across a parenting book that I wasn't familiar with, didn't know the author. Uh, so I turned to the back flap where the little publisher's bio of the author was, and it began like this. So-and-so is the senior pastor of Emmanuel Faith Community Church in Escondido, California, a congregation with a total attendance of 1,500 in two morning services, and the church also has two Sunday evening services. That's, that's what the publisher and the author felt was important for you to know about him. Um, and his local church. Not that it was built on the foundation of Jesus, not that they're there faithfully uh, proclaiming Jesus' word, not that they're marked by the love of Jesus, but that there's 1,500 people there in multiple services. So read on. 
Is the church chosen and precious to you? Is it a holy nation? The people of God called out. Do you love the church as Jesus loves the church? And again, the, the love of the church, is it's concrete in the New Testament. It's not just a nebulous, yes, I love the church, the, the worldwide church that Jesus loves. It, it's lived out in a local congregation. Um, just as Jesus laid down his life for her, you are called to lay down your life. You're called... Uh, as as uh, Paul puts this scattered throughout his, his letters in all of his one another's, right? To love one another, to encourage one another, to forgive one another, bear one another's burdens, serve one another, support one another, and on and on. That works itself out in, in the local church. If you realize what Jesus has done for you and the, the privilege for you as unworthy sinners to be built into his house, then you realize that the measure of whether you love the church or how you love the church is probably how you love the most unlovable people in the church. The people hardest to love or hardest to get along with. The people most critical and never encouraging. The people most outwardly messy. Most needy. Because that's how Jesus loves the church. Uh, you need Jesus as the foundation of the church as much as they. Uh, so may God give us his own love for his church. And we'll continue uh, considering this next week. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your word here in First in Peter. And we thank you for reflecting on the way you took Peter from uh, being a a rock of offense, uh, standing in the way of what you were doing in the world, uh, to uh, embracing it and using him as an encouragement to uh, suffering believers. Uh, we thank you for the privilege that's outlined here uh, of our being chosen for your house and built into uh, and on uh, the Lord Jesus. I pray that you would help us in, in the coming weeks to consider some implications of that that you would give us a love for the church as Jesus has. We pray in his name. Amen.